According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Return me, if, we, if you would, as we return back to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 12. We started with the first six verses of this chapter, and we want to get right back into it again. This is day six, uh, day 88 in the Through the Bible Reading program, so day 88 called Land Allotments. And really there is a hinge right here in this chapter, chapters 1 through 11 center on the conquest, and chapters 12 and following center on the land division. Uh, we just have the final details of the uh, conquest to deal with. I guess it's best to think of it as chapters 1 through 12 as conquest, and then chapters 13 through 24 as the uh, the land division. So let's uh, let's get right to it. Before we do start, though, let's go to the Lord in silent prayer and call upon Him and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege that we have to assemble together. Father, we've, we've feasted all day long, twice now upon Your Word and with the, uh, the potluck meal to our physical bodies. We just thank you for being faithful. We call upon you now for our afternoon sessions. Always uh, a, a challenge after a meal, but Father, you'll keep us awake and we just give you the praise and the glory. Thank you for uh, the truth of the book of Joshua. And I pray that we understand it. And I pray that we apply it. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Does it surprise you that the book of Joshua has application for us today? And I'm not talking about going forth and committing genocide or conquering a land or executing a bunch of people. But I am talking about what is expected of us in the plan of God as church-age believer priests that we are in the angelic conflict, that we are soldiers in the, uh, the plan of God. We have armor, we have weapons, we are expected to be uh, advancing in the uh, conflict that God has designed us for. In fact, far more than Israel ever dreamed of because we wrestle not with flesh and blood, they wrestled with all kinds of flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. We are functioning in the angelic realm, or at least we're supposed to be, as we, uh, as we study this out. So the application we have in the book of Joshua is to take and adapt by analogy what they had to do in their earthly conquest with what we have to do in our spiritual warfare in the church age. So we are taking captive every thought in obedience to Christ Jesus. And we are uh, destroying fortresses, speculations, every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. That we are fully engaged in the angelic conflict in this way. And the book of Joshua is a marvelous text to, to help shape our applications. We, we've seen already what happens when, when you just assume you can handle this and you don't go to the Lord in prayer. And you just assume that, oh, this is a little city, we can, we'll just throw 3,000 troops at it and we'll be fine. And they never stopped to go to the Lord in prayer and seek His will for the, for the conquest of Ai. Or we've also seen other examples where they blindly just listened to a bunch of liars and accepted everything that they told them and, and then made a covenant with them. How, how moronic is that? We better learn those lessons ourselves or we're going to find ourselves unequally yoked in the church age and we're going to be uh, entering into conflict with our hands tied because we're, we're, we've made partnership with light and darkness. And, and it just wrecks anything we're trying to do in, in our spiritual warfare. All right, so last hour we gave you um, 
it's kind of an awkward division here with this, but it's the reading schedule that, that Ron Rhodes gave us. He said to read uh, verses 1 through 6 yesterday on uh, day 87, and then save verses 7 and following for today. And uh, I'm not blaming Ron for this, I'm blaming myself for this actually, because my outline for this chapter was pretty lopsided in uh, in this way. So chapter 12 is a historical review of Israel's military victories across the Jordan and within the land of Canaan. And so it starts with Sihon and Og east of the Jordan, verses 2 through 6, and we read those uh, at the close of our last session. And now we're ready to move on. So you'll notice that's point 1 and 2 in the chapter 12 outline. And now we move on to point 3 in the chapter 12 outline, which is the only point that we have for the rest of chapter 12. The 31 kings west of the Jordan River. And this is the summation of what we're reading here as we read it together, verses 7 through 24. Then before we're done this hour, we're going to get through chapter 13, chapter 14, and we're going to get halfway through chapter 15, or even more than half as we get 19 verses into chapter 15. So we do have a lot of ground to cover this afternoon. So we had Sihon and Og, two kings east of the Jordan. Now we have more kings. These are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the sons of Israel defeated beyond the Jordan toward the west, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, even as far as Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, and Joshua gave it to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, on the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev, in the, Hitt- the Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite. All right, we got all that? This is, the, this is a description of the totality of the land from north to south and all of the ites that are living there, all of the ites that, w- that went to war against to dispossess them of the land. All right, so the king of Jericho counts as one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. All right, remember there were five of those kings that had banded together in order to try to thwart the southern campaign of, of Joshua. Then we have the king of uh, Gezer, one. He's the one that came out and tried to interfere with uh, the victory over Lachish. Then the king of Devir won, the king of Geder won, the king of Hormah won, the king of Arad won, the king of Libna won, the king of Adullam won. And if some of those are new to you, then realize that this list is comprehensive and the detail we've, we've had earlier doesn't cover all of these names. The king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won, the king of Aphek won, the king of Lasharon won. The king of Madon won. The king of Hazor won. We saw that one at great length in the burning of the city and the conquest there in the north. The king of Shimron Muron won. The king of Akshaf won. The king of Tanakh won. The king of Megiddo won. Now that's our first reference to Megiddo, but that's a term we know very well because Har Megiddo, Armageddon, uh, comes up in many of our eschatological studies looking forward to tribulation and Armageddon, of all things. All right. The king of Kedesh won. The king of Jokneam in Carmel won. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor won. The king of Goim in Gilgal won. The king of Tirzah won. And all 31 kings. And so that's the summary there of really the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua. It's the conquest. And notice that in all of that, 
The only battle that they technically that they lost is when they won on the do-over, when they went back to Ai again, having already removed the, the plunder that they should not have taken from Jericho. Once that was removed, once Achan and his family were executed, then the holy nation was, per, was ready to proceed on in the holy war. Okay? Anyway, some people don't like that language, but it is in fact a jihad, it is a holy war, it is commanded by the holy God to uh, remove the unholy people from the holy land. And uh, this is God's good pleasure to put in place. You say, well, how does that make us any better than the, than the Muslims and whatever? Glad you asked. Um, we'll handle that in some future classes. But it's also, also I think it's vital to recognize that while one particular faith in the world today still views this as normative, uh, we view this as historical. This is what they did. This is how they were founded as a nation. And any ongoing applications for us today are just not there. All right, The applications we have today are in the spiritual realm as we function in our ambassador function, our soldier function, our priestly function in the church age. So as long as we're clear on that, then we can (laughs) proceed with no problem. All right, chapter 13 begins the division of the land into the inheritance of the tribes of Israel. And this is going to begin, this is a recognition now that the national duties are done, that the national warfare is complete. In fact, very quickly, those eastern two and a half tribes are going to be dismissed. They're going to be said, okay, job well done, go home you know, to your families and your lands east of the Jordan, and uh, and a little bit of a a uh, misunderstanding that happens in that process, but we're, we, we're done with a national conquest. What remains then are the tribal conquests, where in many cases they fall short, that they don't conquer the, the grant that they were given, and the various trials, almost without exception, almost every tribe has some degree of, uh, of failure, of sin of omission by not taking either uh, towns or cities or territory that they otherwise were supposed to. So the Lord addresses Joshua in his old age and charged him with passing the colors to the next generation. And if you think, wow, that happened fast, how did Joshua grow old just like that? Well, we forget that Joshua was already old, that Joshua was old before he started this war, that uh, he, he had lived through the entire 40-year captivity. He was over 20 at the, at the Exodus itself. He was likely in his, maybe he was in his 40s or 50s at the Exodus itself. Uh, we're just guesstimating based on different things. Uh, we do have some information as it relates to uh, uh, to Caleb that we'll see here shortly. Uh, but Joshua, we're not really told. We're told that he was Moses' attendant from his youth, and we assume that means after the exodus in the wilderness, but what if he was Moses' attendant even before Moses fled Egypt? So that adds another 40 years into the equation. How old is Joshua here? We don't actually know. Anyway, so Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Thanks, God. And very much of the land remains to be possessed because the national warfare was not designed to conquer every single town or village or, or square inch of the promised land. That was the, the big cities were removed, and then the big kingdoms, the big enemies, including the giants, and then the tribes were supposed to go through and do the follow-up for the different regions. So this is the land that remains. And this is kind of shocking to us. All the regions of the Philistines, 
and all those of the Geshurites. The reason why it's shocking is because just reading the text of the first 12 chapters, it seems like, like they were unstoppable, that they never had a failure, that they never uh, had a, a sin of omission. They just went everywhere and conquered everything. But now we find there were a lot of lands that were left out. All the regions of the Philistines, those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north, it is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Ekronite, the Avite. Goliath was the Gittite. He was the champion of, of Gath in his generation. Of course, that's 400 years ahead of this, or after this. To the south, all the land of the Canaanite and the Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek to the border of the Amorite, and the land of the Gebelite, Gebelite and uh, of all Lebanon towards the east. I mean, why is Lebanon still Lebanon? Why didn't they take that land? It was allotted to, uh, I think, Issachar or, or one of the northern tribes. Why did they not take it? From Baal Gad below Mount Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. Lebo Hamath is at the extreme end of the north. That's as far as the spies went. They went all the way to Lebo Hamath, turned around and came all the way back. And yet the conquest was far short of that. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as Misrephoth Mayim and the Sidonians, I will drive them out from before the sons of Israel, only allotted to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. So God is pretty upfront here saying, all right, Joshua, you're old, you're about to die, finish the land grant, the, uh, the, the, but there is unfinished business for the conquest and the tribes are going to have to follow that up. There is not going to be a successor to Joshua appointed. Remember, Joshua was the appointed successor to Moses. And God did that appointment. God appointed Joshua. Joshua had the national leadership. uh, But there will not be a national leader appointed after Joshua. He dies, and all the tribes are left to their tribal leaders, their tribal princes, their clan uh, chieftains, and family heads, and all the rest. So apportion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Only nine and a half tribes remain to receive a land grant because the other two and a half tribes have theirs already. They, uh, they pre-ordered theirs and had them on uh, layaway and, uh, and now they're able to go claim those since the national conquest is done. So the Lord addressed Joshua in his old age, charged him with passing the colors to the next generation. We realize that unconquered land does remain. And the land was to be apportioned so that each tribe could occupy their territory and complete the Canaanite extermination. Okay, For those that choose to stay, they must die. Uh, if they want to flee, they're free to flee. That's on them. Okay, And this is how the Lord ordered the dispossession of the land. The land is being given now to a holy people because it has been removed from the godless uh, pagans that, uh, that had held it prior to that time. All right. Nine and a half tribes west of the Jordan still need their inheritance. Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh already had theirs. So this gets kind of detailed here in verses 8 through 33. The Transjordan conquest was an incomplete conquest, but Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh wanted the land anyway. I think that's curious. And uh, Joshua confirmed the instructions of Moses and released Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh from any further military obligations west of the Jordan. So they get to, uh, they get to stand down, as it were. All right, so let's look at these. 
So with the other half-tribe, the Reubenites and Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan to the east, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to them. From Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, with a city which is in the middle of the valley, and the plain of Mediba as far as Debon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon as far as the border of the sons of Ammon. And Gilead, the territory of the Geshurites and Machathites and all Mount Hermon and all Bashan as far as Salaka. Now some of this stuff, if it bores you to death, just remember it. Remember where it can be found. Remember where you can go back and look for it again. And, and just jot yourself some notes, especially about Gilead. Where did Gilead get its name? Because it seems to be have called Gilead before it was renamed Gilead for other reasons. And there's a city called Jabesh Gilead that we'll get introduced to in the book of, Ju- in the book of Judges and we're wondering... Where did this town come from? Who are these people? And uh, we realized that they had not been mentioned prior in Deuteronomy or Joshua, and not until the, uh, the sad ending to the book of Judges we finally encounter Jabesh Gilead. All right, then we have uh, the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edre. He alone was left of the remnant of the Rephaim, that is, he alone in that region, east of the river, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. For Moses struck them and dispossessed them. But the sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Machathites, for Geshur and Machath live among Israel until this day. Remember, that's not 2022 AD. That's not the day you and I are reading this. It's the day that the author was writing this. When he composed the book of Joshua, at some point after these events were complete, but these people groups were still living in the land at that time. Only the tribe of Levi, he did not give an inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord, the God of Israel, are their inheritance as he spoke to them. So they don't have land territory. They don't have a grant. They get to bring the sacrifices. They get to bring the offerings to the Lord. That is their inheritance. It's their priestly duty. All right, then we get into the sons of Reuben. And I think I'm going to skip through a lot of this. We'll, we'll see some more here. Well, maybe we better read them. They're hard to pronounce. <laughs> it's desirable to skip a lot of these. Anyway, I, I don't see... There's some things here that we'll deal with in the book of Judges, I think. We'll come back to that. But again, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, who Moses stuck with the chiefs of Midian. Those, those uh, eastern kings... Sihon and Og, and the land that was then taken by Reuben and, and uh, half Manasseh. All right. Yeah, so uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses struck with the chiefs of Midian. And the five chiefs of Midian listed there, Evi, Recham, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the princes of Sihon who lived in the land. The sons of Israel also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, the diviner, with a sword among the rest of the slain. Remember that from Deuteronomy. The border of the sons of Reuben was the Jordan. This was the inheritance of the sons of Reuben, according to their families, their cities, and the villages. And then Gad. Moses also gave an inheritance to the tribe of Gad. To the sons of Gad, according to their families, their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead. But again, um, what does that name come from? And what's the origin of that? And are there pre-Israeli, are there an early Canaanite people that, that we're going to have to learn more about when we get into uh, the next book. Anyway, so the territory of Gad is spelled out here. 
Remember Mahanaim, the two camps. All right, the Sea of Chinnereth, that's known as the Sea of Galilee when you get into the Gospels. This is the inheritance of the sons of Gad according to their families, the cities, and their villages. So remember, when all of these tribes are getting their, division, their, their land grants, then they have to go back and then they have to subdivide. They have to take the total tribal grant and they have to break it down into the clans. And the clans have their territory. Once that's determined, then the clans have to come back and they have to subdivide. They have to decide which of the cities and which of the the territories are going to their families, their heads of households that are the the leading uh, family groups within the particular clans. So they're all subunits of each other. And I hope all this makes sense. If it's, if it's alien to us, we've got to work hard at it to realize how, because we think of, of, of like the nuclear family as, as the core with just, you know, a husband and a wife and some kids under a roof as if that's the family. But the family group is much larger than that in the, in the uh, tribal structure of Israel. And it can include multiple adult sons with their wives, with their children that all fun, fall under a head of household. Okay? And saw a little bit of that with Achan uh, this morning. And uh, the arrangements there. Alright, then the half-tribe of Manasseh starting in verse 29. And uh, again the mention here of Bashan and the kingdom of Og and the towns of Jair which are in Bashan. 60 cities. Look how huge that grant was. 60 cities. And remember this is only half of Manasseh. Getting really a large disproportionately large I think in terms of square miles, in terms of just the, the pure acreage of the half Manasseh Grant, combined with the half Manasseh Grant on the western side of the uh, Jordan River, in my mind, is, is huge. And uh, when you look at Ephraim, who has more population than, than Manasseh, but Manasseh has more acreage than, uh, than Ephraim. I don't know how much of that is because of their cattle or because of the, the, uh, the livestock they were ra- raising or any of that, but it is curious to me. Anyway, of the clans of Manasseh that are on the eastern side, uh, you see this name here a lot, the sons of Machir. This is the, the primary clan east of, of, of um, Manasseh, east of the river. Half the sons of Machir according to their families. So these are the territories which Moses apportioned for an inheritance in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho to the east. So Moses subdivided this and he did the ground survey and all that. He gave those two and a half tribes their land before he ever even gave uh, control of the, the, you know, the keys to the kingdom over to Joshua. That was already predetermined during the days of Moses and, uh, and Joshua honored the, those agreements. Again, Levi is the exception. Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he had promised to them. All right, now this gets us to chapter 14, and in 14 and 15 we start to get more details. Earlier we were seeing in the southern campaign there was reference to to Hebron, there was reference to Debir, there was reference to some other localities in the south, and they were conquered in the south uh, a part of the national conquest that was happening, but now there's additional follow-up raids, uh, follow-up missions that have to be accomplished by the tribe of Judah. And uh, we start to see this, and then Caleb and his activity, both in the national conquest and in the tribal conquest. So, chapter 14. These are the territories which the sons of Israel 
inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. So this is what we deal with. The national campaign is over. The Lord said, Joshua, you're getting old. Divide the land and get ready to die. And this is what's going to happen. So Joshua teams up with the high priest, Eleazar in this generation. Of course, he's about to die too. But Joshua and Eleazar, and then they'll have some tribal uh, elders that will assist in this in this survey, this ground survey. So by the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses, for the nine tribes and the half tribe. So they'll have to draw lots, and Judah was going to get the first lot, and as they as they get called one by one, and as their grants are then given, um, some of this is just the random drawing of the lot, and then some of this, of course, the sovereignty is always God's. Anytime the die is cast, the results are in God's hands. All right. And again, the two and a half tribes don't count. They're, uh, they're already out of the picture on the east side of the river for their livestock and their property. All right, so then verse 6. If I have lost any points here. Land division continues with the land west of the Jordan. Eliezer the priest has supreme spiritual authority. Joshua has supreme temporal authority. This is really kind of an interesting tandem to me. We see it again when they come back from captivity under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. But here in this generation, it's uh, Joshua and Eliezer. And the heads of the households assist Eliezer and Joshua in the land allocations. And we're going to start, though, with a request that Caleb makes. Caleb has a land request which is granted and blessed by Joshua. So let's look at these. The sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to them. He's frequently, the most common name for Caleb is Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Um, less um, central is his uh, position as a Kenizzite. You know, what does that signify? What clan is that speaking to? And then there's other puzzles connected to Caleb as well. We'll talk about that shortly. So Caleb speaks up and he comes to Joshua and he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. As I mentioned before, we don't, we're not, I don't think, see Joshua dies, are we told, I think he's 110 when he dies? Check me on that. We'll, we'll get to that at the end of the book. But uh, here's Caleb who was 40 at the Kadesh Barnea rebellion. Now he's over 80. Now he's over 80, but he's still leading troops in battle. And he still has unmarried daughters that he's offering up as prizes, which to me is, you know, amazing. I have to wonder, you know, what was he in his 50s when he's having these kids? What's going on with Caleb on this? Anyway, so um, the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Of course, Joshua knows all this. He was the other faithful spy. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. So now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke. These 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I'm 85 years old today. 
So happy birthday, Caleb. But this also gives us a clue. Remember I said it's a little fuzzy how long these wars are taking, the, the, the campaign in the south, the campaign in the north. And this text actually helps us. We find out that we've had five years that have passed since the, uh, the end of their, of their wanderings. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and for coming in. Well, that's pretty awesome. Now, I don't think that's normal. I mean, this is clearly a work of God for an 85-year-old to have the health of a, of a 40-year-old. So he says, Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day that Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. And that was the biggest thing that scared all those other spies. And it, it, it seems to me like Caleb has just been licking his chops for 40 years, waiting for the day that he can go get those guys, waiting for the day that he can go make good on the faith that he was expressing with his words way back at, at Kadesh Barnea. So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as an inheritance. <laughs> you know, there's a blessing for you. It's a city full of giants. Enjoy. You know, Caleb's like, great. That's, uh, wouldn't have it any other way. It's also, by the way, a Levitical city. And so that's kind of nice too, where it can be assigned to the tribe of Judah. It could be granted as a personal holding of the, of the, uh, the patriarch, essentially, uh, Canaan, or uh, Caleb. But then at the same time, he's going to be surrounded by Levites. He's going to be surrounded by the Word of God and Bible teachers. And what a, what a great provision for Caleb in this, in this ap- uh, application. So Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh of the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. And the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. So we get a little glimpse of things here, and this, this intrigues me. Formerly, the old name, Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Isn't that how the other chapter ended? Yep, exactly. All right. Let's uh, pick up on some notes here. Uh, there's a lot to, uh, to deal with. First of all, Caleb is a mystery. Caleb has some puzzles connected to him. And I said this 20 years ago, that I wanted, someday I want to do just a life of Caleb and, and really tear into not only the text that's revealed here, but also some of the remaining questions that the text only hints at and leaves us pondering. And uh, I've, I've not completed that study. It's, it might take another 20 years. Uh, but you will notice, by the way, on my homepage, when you see my dashboard, you're going to notice I have a workflow here, biblical person study, Caleb the spy. And uh, I'm ready to jump into that any day now. Likewise, the region of Lydia. That's a study for a different reason. And then uh, Ephesians 3.18 for other reasons. Anyway, these are my pending studies I'm going to get to um, someday but not this day. Now, here's some of the puzzles that we come to. Um, there is some question as to the exact ancestry of Caleb. The genealogy in 1 Chronicles 2.18 mentions Caleb as the son of Hezron. Caleb the son of Hezron had sons by Azuba, his wife, and by Jerioth, and these were her sons. Jeshur, Shobab, and Arden. And uh, when Azuba died, Caleb married Ephrath, who bore him her. 
And Hur became the father of Uri, and Uri became the father of Bezalel. Some of these names are familiar to us, but then we have even more puzzles when we try to link those. Afterward, Hezron went in to the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead. Okay, so now there's a, another tribal tie-in there. Hezron, the father of um, Caleb. Afterwards, Hezron went in to the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead, whom he married when he was 60 years old, and she bore him Segub. And Segub became the father of Jer, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. Remember, they were named Kiryat Jer, I think, or something, Jer Hatavoth. Anyway, he named all those cities after himself. Anyway, um, Caleb. Is he the son of Jephunneh or is he the son of Hezron? Are we talking about two different Caleb's? Okay. So some people just take a, they, they take a pass, they bail on it, and say, well, that's two different Caleb's. And we have the famous Caleb who was the spy and the conqueror of the giants and whatever. Uh, and then we have this other Caleb who was nobody we really know and care about. And, but he's got a very comprehensive genealogy here with tribal connections and clan connections and even intertribal connections with the uh, Manassites and different things. Plus the fact that Caleb is not a normal Jewish name. Caleb is, is, is an unclean animal. Caleb is a dog. Caleb is the Hebrew word for dog. And a dog is an unclean animal. So and, and this is not a reflection of any personal anime. You know, it's not my uh, hostility against dogs that's coming out here. I'm telling you, the Hebrews viewed the dog as the unclean animal. And that's, that's clear from Leviticus, right? It's even in the New Testament, Philippians 3, beware of the dogs. So we have, <laughs> what parent would name their son dog as an unclean animal, as an animal that's viewed as a pest, as an animal that's viewed as, a, not viewed as man's best friend in the ancient world, okay? Uh, they were viewed as the scavengers, the jackals, the the uh, they they would creep into the fringes of of your territories. Uh, you would you want want to drive them away, okay? So they don't get in, into your flocks and herds and whatnot. You know the idea we have today of man's best friend or, or sheep dogs or other roles uh, on the farm that that dogs have been trained in in, in more modern times to deal with. We don't have biblical testimony of, of such usage in ancient Israel. So what Jewish parents would name their son Caleb? Well, evidently Hezron did, and evidently Jephunneh did. If Assuming that those are two different people. Maybe they're the same person. On the other hand, Jephunneh the Kenizzite is called Caleb's father in Numbers 32.12. The Kenizzites were descendants of Kenaz, seemed to be one of the Edomite tribes roaming the deserts of Sinai. Now wait a minute. This means they're not even Jewish. This means they're not even... So how is he associated with the tribe of Judah? How does he become a spy for the tribe of Judah if he's an Edomite dog that's, that's uh, adopted into the... In, is he adopted into the clan? Is this what happened? Remember, a mixed multitude went out of Egypt with the Jewish people when they went forth at the Exodus. Could Caleb have been a part of that mixed multitude that came out? So it was into one of these tribes, the Kenites, that Moses had married. So uh, records of Moses and his, because uh, his father-in-law was called a Kenite, who 
who was also known as Hobab, who was also known as Jethro. See, these guys had multiple names, so it's not far-fetched for the idea that, that Jephunneh and Hezron are the same person. They just had different names. But the, the tribal associations are, are curious. So the migration of, Israel's northward, uh, of Israel northward attracted some of these people, and they joined themselves in faith to the Lord and to his people. Actually, Moses invited for his brother-in-law to join them. And, and say, come with us into the promised land, the son of Jethro, the, the brother of Zipporah. But he said no. Uh, so Caleb's family was attached to the tribe of Judah, and Caleb quickly gained a place of leadership. Although the chief of the tribe was Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the line of Christ goes through Nashon, the son of Amminadab, in the, in the tribe of Judah records. It was Caleb who was represented the tribe as the spy. Uh, into and later as one who divided the land into tribal areas. He was assigned the land uh, allotment uh, officer position. It is said that Caleb was uh, given his portion among the children of Judah. He gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah. Almost like he didn't technically belong there, but he was counted as, as belonging there. So he got his land grant among his adopted tribe, implying that he was not actually a member of that tribe. Centuries later, in the days of Saul and David, the Calebites were still a distinct family in Judah, and their part of the country seems to have been a separate enclave in the, uh, within the tribe. And there's references there in 1 Samuel 25. Nabal the fool, whose wife's name was Abigail, he was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. That references his clan. Associated with Judah, but technically not exactly Judah. Located within Judah's land grant, but still a separately distinct clan. Same thing with uh, chapter 30, when uh, David was talking about his various raids as a Philistine um, chieftain. He said, we made a raid on the Negev of the Carathites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb and we burned Ziklag with fire. And regardless of whatever else is going into that verse, you can tell that David is clearly separating Judah from Caleb. Anyway, there's more on that. Uh, I, I clipped this entire thing from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia and it was a puzzle to me 20 years ago. It remains a puzzle to me to this day. One of these days... I'll probably wait till I meet Caleb in heaven and find him directly. But I expect there's going to be a long line of people wanting to, uh, wanting to meet Caleb. All right, so there's the land grant in chapter 14. And, and some of the details on Caleb are interesting. His testimony about his fitness, his testimony about his willingness to lead the troops in combat, some of the other things that I think... Um, are, are interesting to read, and you don't just take them as empty boasts of a, of a you know, you expect a, a young man to, to be full of boastings about his prowess and his capacities and whatever else, but this is the oldest guy in the country. You know, it's either him or Joshua, whichever one's older is the oldest, you know, Jew on the planet. And uh, between the two of them now, they're discussing, uh, you know, what, what needs to happen next in the conquest. And this maybe was particularly hurtful for, for uh, Caleb to be spouting these things to Joshua just, just a few verses after the Lord told Joshua, you're old. 
right? I mean, isn't that how the chapter started? The Lord told Joshua, you're old. So anyway, uh, Caleb said, I'm not. I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm strong. All right, we're going to do all that. Now, time to give Judah their grant. So we get into chapter 15. All right, so, and this is, uh, we're going to get 19 verses done in this chapter. All right, we're actually in good, good shape, time-wise. So, Joshua has instructions. He's old. He's ready to die. He's got to apportion the land. He put a team together with, with Eliezer, the priest. They've got some tribal uh, family leaders ready to go, and they're going to start dividing up the land. They're going to start with the various tribes. Judah comes first. Then we're going to see these other tribes that follow. Um, before they get to that uh, is when uh, Caleb speaks up with his request, and he gets that granted. Sure, you can have, uh, you can have Hebron and uh, have fun with the giants when you get there. Now, the lot for the tribe of the sons of Judah, according to their families, reached the border of Edom, southward to the wilderness of Zin, and the extreme south. So uh, Judah definitely has uh, the south. That's their realm. Okay? Just as uh, we're going to see when the kingdom gets divided north and south, south kingdom is Judah. That's the kingdom that joined by Benjamin is the only two faithful tribes in, uh, in the south. Which makes us wonder what happened to Simeon. Why did Simeon go north? Because Simeon's territory is in the south. All right. Tribal borders are established within the conquest borders previously stipulated. So all the map work we did back in um, earlier, um, Numbers chapter 34, we did the map work that kind of charted out the national boundaries. So we had the southern boundary that was already fixed, and then we had the western boundary as the, the Mediterranean, and then we had the far north, and we had the River Jordan. Uh, so we had kind of a national template ready to go. Now those same borders are going to be revisited, but we're going to start to see the subdivisions. We're going to start to see who who has the uh, the edges of this of this map in uh, in the national development. All right, does that make sense? It's like uh, you know in the United States of America, we've got these border states, and they, they're on the edge of the of the national border. But they are, you know, the subdivisions of the of the national border, like Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, the states that all are right up against the national border of uh, the southern United States. So something similar that that we deal with here. All right. So reach the border of Edom southward to the wilderness of Zin with a Z at the extreme south. Their south border was from the lower end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that turns to the south. And it proceeded southward to the ascent of Akrabim. We've seen that before as well in the book of Numbers. Continued to Zin. Then went up by the south of Kadesh Barnea and continued to Hezron. And went up to Adar and turned about to Karka. So not only do we have the directions, but then we have changes to the, to the directions. The border is actually changing directions as it proceeds from point to point to point along that southern tier. Continued to Asmon, then proceeded to the brook of Egypt, the river of Egypt, the wadi of Egypt, the Nahal of Egypt. Or wadi, yeah, so much has gone into this Hebrew word. Are we talking about the Nile? Are we talking about a wadi? What are we talking about with this brook of Egypt? If you ask any five Jews, you're going to get nine opinions on this brook of Egypt. And what exactly does that mean? What does it signify? 
And the border ended at the sea. This shall be your south border. All right, so they got that figured out. The Mediterranean, that's hard to miss. That's the big body of water there. And uh, don't go past that to the west. All right, the east border was the Salt Sea, what we call the Dead Sea today, the southern of the two bodies of water along the Jordan River. Because the Sea of Galilee is up north, the Jordan River River flows south out of that into the Dead Sea. And then the Dead Sea has no outlets. It has no river flow out. It's it's called, uh, oh, there's a... There's a word for that, endo, endo something, which means that's where it endos, <laughs> okay? It's, it endo, it, it evaporates, it sinks into the ground, it just doesn't flow out, okay? Endobaric, endothermic, endo something. Anyway, extra credit if you want to look that up after class. Okay, not now. Don't be Googling now while you should be listening. So the eastern border, the Salt Sea, as far as the mouth of the Jordan, that would be up there at the northern tip where Jericho was located. The border on the north side was from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan. Then the border went up to Beth Hoglah, continued on the north of Beth Arabah, and the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. The border went up to Debir from the Valley of Achor and turned northward toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south of the valley. And the border continued to the waters of En Shemesh, and it ended at En Rogel. Then the border went up by the valley of Ben-Hinnom to the slope of the Jebusite on the south. That's when you start to get to that edge of Jerusalem. Jerusalem really sat in the middle. It was on the the border in the no man's land between uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and neither tribe could take it. it. It would stay in Jebusite hands for some 400 years until King David. So there's uh, the Jebusite on the south, that is Jerusalem. And the border went up to the top of the mountain, which is before the valley of Hinnom to the west, which is at the end of the valley of Rephaim toward the north. Keep that valley in your mind, the valley of the giants, the valley of Rephaim towards the north. A famous battle with Goliath took place in that valley of Rephaim. From the top of the mountain of the border, curved to the spring of the waters of Nephtoah and proceeded to the cities of Mount Ephron. Then the border curved towards Bala, that is Kiriath-Jerim. And the border turned about from Bala westward to Mount Seir, continued to the slope of Mount Jerim on the north, that is Chesalon, went down to Beth Shemesh and continued through Timnah. Okay, is your head spinning? Mine too, okay? You just get lost. And then the west border at the Great Sea was its coastline. This is the border around the sons of Judah according to their families. And so again, the maps are helpful when you come to them. Um, Any of these... Geographic locations, you can select it as a place and then open up your atlas. You can start to see some of the divisions, especially as we're looking at the tribal inheritance divisions. This is actually a very useful map. And you're going to notice the Judah land grant is pretty huge. And um, everything that you see down here is what we just read about. Okay? And all the details on that. We haven't read about this little part yet. This is an enclave inside of uh, the tribe of Judah. And that's where Simeon is going to go. It's going to be their tribal land grant. They're going to be nested inside of Judah. So the tribe of Simeon only has one border. It's the border with Judah. Which really puts them in an awkward spot when the tribe of Simeon wants to go to the north. We'll leave that open for now.
All right, so tribal borders are established within the conquest borders previously stipulated. The request of Caleb is confirmed. When we read about in the last chapter, we get more details here. Details are provided for Caleb's victories over the giants of Hebron. And this is kind of fun. Boy, I want to see this on video. I want to watch, I want to watch the old man, the 85-year-old Caleb, just get out there and start mixing it up with the giants. You know, David gets all the glory for the, being the 10-year-old boy in the slingshot but, and with, against one giant. But here's Caleb, 85 years old, with three giants. So he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah. Among the sons of Judah. Almost like, you know, he's, he's a stepson or something. He's, he's adopted in. According to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba. Arba being the father of Anak, that is, Hebron. So these are some kind of some interesting details. I think uh, one way to model this, and kind of the way I'm, 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 I'm settling on, Arba is actually a proper name of a fallen angel. Arba, the fallen angel who procreated Anak. Mentioned there, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. Anak being the Nephilim son of Arba. He's got a fallen angel for a father. He's got a human mother, uh, one of the Amorite women as, as the human mother. And so he's hybrid. He's, he's half angel, half human. He's Nephilim. And he, he does become, Anak becomes essentially Hebron. He is the, the, uh, the founder of that clan. Caleb also drove out from there the three sons of Anak. Shishai, Ahimam, and Talmai, the children of Anak. So there's three names. Anak's uh, clan chieftains, Shishai, Ahimam, and Talmai. Now this is interesting uh, because we had asked the question earlier, are Nephilim able to procreate? Can Nephilim, uh, can they produce children with, uh, you know, more human women? Can we, can we, um, can the Nephilim procreate that sin, that sinful, angelic nature? Remember, none of these guys are in Adam. None of these guys without a human father, just like Jesus and the virgin birth, without a human father, they are not in Adam. They don't have the Adamic sin nature. They can't be redeemed by the second Adam who dies on the cross because he's not identifying with these abominations. These guys are half angel, half human. And the the human half is not from the father. Anyway, the clan chieftains, Anakim, are part of the Nephilim. And, and this, this logic is, is very helpful, and I hope you can follow this. The, um, and, and I wish there was more written on this, but it just seems like so much of it gets um, glossed over. Okay? So much of this gets glossed over because, and even good authors, Arnold Fruchtenbaum is wrong. It's just, it's sad to me. Genesis 6-4 says, The Nephilim were on earth in those days. What, what days were those? Genesis 6, those are the days of Noah, the days of the flood. And also afterward, what days are those? <laughs> the days afterwards, right? That's after the flood event. So there, were, there have been Nephilim on the earth before and after the flood. It was the Nephilim before the flood that brought about the global judgment and caused God's wrath because all flesh had corrupted the way upon the earth. It was absolutely endemic to the antediluvian world but also afterward. So we have, to, we have to be fair to the text. And if we find Nephilim after the flood, 
then we say, well, of course, because that's what was promised back in Genesis 6-4. On the earth in those days and also afterward. And we find them in Numbers 13. Twelve spies went into the land from Kadesh Barnea. They went from south to north. They went as far as, as the, whatever that L word was, in the far north of the, uh, of the land. And then they came back. It was Lebo something. Lebo-Hamath, yeah. From the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Lebo-Hamath. And then they returned back. But notice, when they had gone into the Negev, they came to Hebron where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. So they, they come across these three giants. They come across the, the, uh, these, these huge creatures there in Hebron. And so they come back and they make this report that the inhabitants are very large. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the seed of Anak. The descendants of Anak are there. Remember, Anak is the Nephilim son of Arba, as we're looking at tonight. And, you know, for the folks that want to say, well, it's not true, they were lying, they were scared, they were exaggerating, they were making up stories, um, that's not what Caleb and Joshua said. And they could have easily refuted the lies in this chapter. And besides, 40 years from now, Caleb's got to go deal with them. They're still there. There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim. Now it does appear that the term Nephilim doesn't have the frequency of usage after the flood, even though it's identified as being the same as the Nephilim before the flood, that they are the hybrids. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight, so we were in their sight. That's not good. All right. Somebody remind me never to put my coffee there again. All right. So we saw the Nephilim. And then the note, the textual note the author puts in here. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. I think that's worth writing down. <laughs> the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Okay. They're also called Anakim. These sons of, uh, of Anak are called Anakim. And in Deuteronomy 2.11, they're called Rephaim. Like the Anakim, they're also regarded as Rephaim. So are you following the logic on this? We have to draw a, a chart with circles that overlap. Okay? So... The sons of Anak. I think this is the, 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 the linchpin. This actually links these things together. The, the sons of Anak, the Anakim, are the sons of Anak. Okay? They are part of the Nephilim. They are also regarded as Rephaim. The post-flood Nephilim were the ones that were called the Rephaim, the giants. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Nephilim or you're talking about Rephaim. Those are two separate Hebrew words, but they appear to be so interchangeable that the Septuagint uses the same word to translate them both. Whether you're talking about Nephilim or you're talking about Rephaim, the Greek word is gigantes, giant. Okay? They're all called gigantes. 
So we have the issues there. Their clan chieftains are these guys, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. And, uh, and they're still there. What have they been doing for the last 40 years? How old can a Nephilim get anyway? What's the lifespan of a Nephilim? Well, he's half angel. Do you think that affects his longevity? Think that affects uh, on you know does that benefit his human side on how long he's going to live? See, some of these are some additional puzzles as well. Remind me when we get to some of the other legends that apply to uh, the Old Testament, because uh, some of them will come up in the Book of Ruth when we talk about the um, the sister-in-law who was not Ruth. The sister-in-law who was also a Moabitess that stayed in Moab, that did not uh, join with Boaz or did not become a Jewish, uh, a Jewess uh, like, like Ruth did. When Ruth married Boaz, she became a Jew and she married into the Jewish people and she became the ancestress of, of, uh, of David, right? The great-grandmother, I guess, of, of David. So some of, these, some of these stories are interesting because that other woman is by tradition, she's the mother of Goliath. They, uh, that other Moabite woman is the one that produced the, the Nephilim Goliath. And yet there's all those generations in between. So how old do these giants get? How long does it take to grow a giant to that size? Okay, And are there Nephilim in the world today? Possibly. But does uh, Satan leave them here long enough to get that tall? Or does, uh, does he leave them here for a season and then remove them? These are more questions that I have. All right, well, we've got to wrap this up. Um, yeah, oh, so that's the end of chapter 15. Okay. Well, then good. Chapter 15 continues tomorrow. Okay, we only had to make it down through, uh, through verse 20, if that's correct. Day 88, yes. Takes us from 12, 7 to 15, 19. All right, so we will pick up with chapter 20, I mean with verse 20. That'll be in day 89. That'll finish chapter 15. That'll take us through chapter 16 and chapter 17. These are shorter chapters, you might have noticed. All right, so let's take a break. Let me close in prayer. We'll take a break and we will come back for day 89. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your faithfulness. And I thank you, Father. It just seems like um, here we go again. And um, in Genesis, we had all kinds of angelic conflict information in Job. I mean, it just starts off right off the bat with Satan accusing Job and all kinds of scenes in heaven. And uh, then with Exodus and the sorcerers of, of Egypt and uh, with Leviticus and, and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, we've had angels in every single book. And so now here we are in Joshua. It's going to continue in, in Judges. It's going to continue. Father, um, the angelic conflict is the backdrop underneath uh, all of the biblical record for uh, for your plan towards us. And I pray that we understand this. I pray that we embrace our role in the church age as those that are demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God, that we might be the testimonies to your grace, to your abundant grace, uh, not only to this lost and dying world, but to the principalities and the powers that are watching over us. So Father, uh, thank you for uh, making these things clear. For the things that are still yet unclear, uh, just keep us um, digging away and chewing at it, Father. Uh, one of these days, uh, these, these final pieces will fall into place. So we thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.